Good morning. Great singing. I love the choruses. I love the hymns. That hymn, I Surrender All, brings back memories to me because, man, how many years ago was that now? Too many years ago. At a missionary conference at Canadian Bible College where I studied. Anybody here remember Dr. L.L. King? Anybody here go back that far with the Alliance? L.L. King? Okay, there's two of us here. He was the president of the Alliance way back in the day. And uh, he came and spoke at our missionary conference. And there's a cartoon character, one of Bugs Bunny's, or one of those Looney Tunes characters. And I can't remember the guy's name, but he, he's kind of balding, kind of a big, ne- big nose, a long neck. Now, it wasn't Elmer Fudd. It was somebody, maybe it was an earlier version of Elmer Fudd. I don't remember. But every time I, I see Dr. L.L. King in my head, I think of that cartoon character. God bless him. He's, he's with the Lord in heaven today, so hopefully he won't be mad at me for saying that. But I just picture that comes to my mind is this guy with the collar comes up to here and whatever. So, huh? Uh, yeah, I could do that one too. I have to think about that a little bit more, but that's a possibility. Whatever, it's Dr. L. King, so missionary conference, and he's given this all week long, this challenge to surrender, to surrender to the Lord, and uh, commit yourself to serve him overseas, especially, because that was the focus of missionary conference, and, and the Spirit of God was speaking to my heart the whole week, just tugging away at me and pulling those strings and challenging me, and I'm fighting him the whole week. I'm not going to give in, Lord, I'm not going to surrender. Well, popular song at that time, I think it was Randy Stonehill, Lord, please don't send me to Africa, I think was the song. And so that was kind of through my head, don't, please don't send me to Africa. So of course, the next year on the Alliance Youth Corps, I end up in Africa. And the Lord kind of confirms the call that he placed on my heart at that time. Anyways, the song, I Surrender All, the last day of missionary conference, the last sermon that he gives, the Spirit of God has just beaten me up, and then they sing that song. And how, how are you supposed to fight against that song after the Lord has been fighting with you the whole week, or you've been fighting against the Lord the whole week. And, and uh, so I just said, okay, Lord, no more, I can't. But I waited to the last verse of the last song, <laughs> of the last day of missionary conference to say, okay, God, whatever you want. And uh, had the privilege of serving for six weeks in Upper Volta at that time. It's now called Burkina Faso. And Alliance Youth Corps, and then coming back, finishing up school, meeting my wife-to-be, and then grad school, and then eventually missionary service in, in Venezuela. And uh, with the intention, actually, going back to Africa, ironically enough, and then the Lord sent a missionary to Venice, from, to Venezuela to our home for a missionary conference, and he kind of steered us in a different direction, and we ended up in Venezuela. So Spanish is a whole lot more useful to me today than French or I guess it would have been Jula, uh, would have been for me here in North America at least. But all that aside, I Surrender All. Great song, challenging song. And I pray that as we go through this morning together, that song kind of speak away at your heart as, as we consider God's word together. So uh, when was I here last? It was September sometime, right? Middle of September, I think. We started looking at the Beatitudes and we talk about the lifestyles of the poor and nameless. Anybody remember that? Okay, lifestyle. We're going to carry on with the lifestyles of the poor and the nameless. And we're going to be in Matthew chapter 5. 
see if this thing's going to work for me. All right. There's a button on here somewhere, right? There we go. All right, I got it. So, lifestyles of the poor and nameless. Pope John Paul was speaking years ago uh, to a group of teens in the Holy Land. This was in March of 2000, so that's years ago. And he made a very acute observation about our culture at that time, which I think applies to our culture today. And who it appears to be blessed. Okay, we're considering the, the Beatitudes, and, and the key word that pops up in the Beatitudes is blessed are. Well, he kind of gave this observation about who our culture perceives to be the blessed ones. And so he noted, let me give them to you. Blessed are the proud Blessed are the violent. Blessed are those who prosper at any cost. Blessed are the unscrupulous. Blessed are the pitiless. Blessed are the, de uh, the devious. Blessed are those who fight. Blessed are the persecutors. That sound anything like what Jesus gave to us? Not a whole lot, right? But that was his perception of how the, our culture views those who are blessed. And it kind of runs opposite, counter, to what Jesus had to say. Before we go further on that, a couple of weeks ago when I was here, we talked about the first couple of verses, verses five and, uh, 3 and 4, and we talked about disciples understand that they are spiritually bankrupt, and disciples understand the powerful consequences of sin each of these beatitudes, as I understand them, builds upon the next. So if you understand that you're spiritually bankrupt, then you realize how powerful the effects of sin are upon your life. If you understand that our society is spiritually bankrupt, you understand the powerful effect and consequences of sin in our society. Have you noticed that of late? I wrote a little post in Facebook yesterday just my heart breaks at the hateful rhetoric that is so evident in our news today, in Facebook, Twitter, you name it. Just the, the hateful rhetoric that, that everybody is espousing. Right-wing, left-wing, Christian, non-Christian. There is just this, this hatefulness that we're showering upon our society, and it breaks my heart, and I know it breaks God's heart, because God said, out of the overflow of the heart, what speaks? The mouth. So I have to stop and ask myself, what, what am I speaking in today's environment? What kind of words am I speaking? And do I recognize who is doing the battling in our society today, and, and who is wrecking havoc upon the United States of America today? It's not the left wing, it's not the right wing, it's not the progressives, it's not the conservatives, it's not Antifa, it's not any of these organizations, it's Satan. Working through these organizations to destroy this nation from within. And then I read some of the rhetoric of some of my fellow believers and I go, man, people, Satan has got a hold of you and he's using you to say the very things that he wants said to rip apart this society even, even further. And bring down the name of Jesus, not elevate the name of Jesus. 
A disciple understands that he or she is spiritually bankrupt. Apart from Jesus working in us, we are bankrupt. We have no hope and no future. And the disciple understands the powerful consequences of their sin. And of how great their sin is and how great they have a need for a Savior. So in a little while, we're going to celebrate the Lord's Supper. And that just reminds us again of a great Savior that we have who came to save us from our great sin and our great need. So that's the first two verses, and they build on each other. And so now we move on to verses 5 and 6, and we see what Jesus says. In contrast to how John Paul saw culture elevating those who he, the culture discerned as blessed, this is how Jesus sees those who are blessed. Blessed are the meek. Just stop for a moment and think on that one in, in light of our culture today. Blessed are the meek, for they will inherit the earth. We're going to look at that word meek and what that means and how it builds upon those who are who uh, recognize their spiritual bankruptcy and those who see the powerful consequences of sin. <laughs> they can't be boastful. They can't be proud. They turn in and look up and recognize their great need and receive from the one, the only one that can give. Blessed are the meek, for they will inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for McDonald's. Wendy's, Burger King, Arby's, none of the above. Hunger and thirst for righteousness. There, there is a, a famine in our news cycles today. There is a famine on Twitter. There is a famine on, on Facebook for, for hungering and thirsting for righteousness. Righteousness is not to be found, just the opposite. So if you're spending a lot of time in the news, reading the news, gathering the news, you're going to come away from there discouraged. You're going to come away from there feeling beat up, and you're going to come away from there with this great hunger and thirst for something that will fill you, that will satisfy you, and the only one that can do that is Jesus. Not Donald Trump, not Joe Biden, not the Republicans, not the Democrats, not the Libertarian Party. Don't hear much about them, although they do have some great memes out there. None of the political parties, none of the news cycles are going are to satisfy what this culture and this country really needs. Righteousness and peace that only comes from the Lord Jesus. So Jesus had a different view and he calls us to this today. Blessed are the meek. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst righteousness so we're going to talk about this meekness and I want to suggest to you this morning that meekness is not weakness rather it's strength under control have you ever heard of the dependent order of really meek and timid souls the dependent order of really meek and timid souls there's a mouthful for you Say that one fast several times. When you make an acrostic of the first letters of its name, you have the word doormats. 
doormats. Their official insignia, yellow caution light. And their official motto is, the meek shall inherit the earth, if that's okay with everybody. Doormats. Is that what the word meek here is referring to? Are we called to be doormats in our society? We just lay down and and play dead and let people run all over us? Is that what the word meek means? Is that what Jesus is referring to when he says, Blessed are the meek, for they will inherit the earth? Are the weak, or the meek nothing but weak doormats? <laughs> no, meekness is not weakness. It's strength under control. The word praus, translated meek in our text, in most versions means humble or gentle. But it's also used to describe a horse under control of a bit and a bridle. Who are my horse people here? Any horse people here? Does it make a difference to have the horse under bit and bridle? Yeah, yeah. You can control that animal, where it's going to go. You can control the pace. Well, some of us can. I, I never had real good success with horses, but some of us can control them. Some, just by using their, their legs, can control what's happening with the horse. But picture a horse. They're a powerful animal. My, my one encounter with, well, one of my encounters with a horse when I was a kid, my uncle's farm, I guess I got between mom and, and the colt, foal, what do they call them? Foal? Yeah, I got between mom and the foal, and she didn't like that, so she kicked me. Yeah, sent me flying. It was a great experience. I didn't want to go out and see near any horses for a long time after that. I have a great deal of respect for horses. And I grew up in the city of Calgary, which is in the province of Alberta, and it's known for its Calgary Stampede. So we would go every year to the Calgary Stampede, and we'd see the rodeo, and we'd see the horses, and we'd see the Brahma bulls, and the bucking broncos, and all that good stuff. And I always made sure I was well away. I was in the stands watching them do whatever those fools wanted to do down there with those bucking broncos and those Brahma bulls. That wasn't for me. There's something amazing when you watch those animals in full action with a horse that's in full flight, the power that's in those legs, but yet a power that can be controlled and directed with a bit and a bridle. Strength under control. That's the picture in that word meek. And Jesus uses the word to describe himself. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle. That's the word praus. I am gentle and humble in heart. Or, we go on a little bit further, in Matthew 18. And Jesus is quoting Zechariah the prophet when he says, Say to the daughter of Zion, see your king comes to you, gentle and riding on a donkey. On a colt, the foal of a donkey. The word gentle describing the way Jesus sits upon that foal and the attitude with which he enters into Jerusalem. He could have entered into Jerusalem as he was the king, the powerful king. He could have come in and just with the snap of his finger, with the word off his tongue, could have destroyed the Roman Empire. Could have set Jerusalem free. Could have risen to the throne himself, which is what the people wanted. But he didn't come in that way. He came in gentle 
and humble. Jesus came in humility. He came to do his Father's will, but he didn't come in cowering. He didn't come in asking for permission from the Roman Empire. He didn't come in asking for permission from the priests and the Jews. He didn't come in asking for permission from Pilate. He came in doing, fulfilling the will of his Father. And he came in strength. And there's a strength that exudes from Jesus that you see in his counter with Satan in the wilderness. He's not cowering in Satan's presence. There's a strength as he encounters Satan, as he puts Satan in his place. And his encounters with the demons that he cast out from the tortured people. There's a strength in his encounters with the religious leaders as he puts them in their place. With the profiteers in the temple, when he overturns the temple, the tables, and the money changers, he drives them out of the temple. This is a house of prayer. It's not a, a sales, it's not a mall. You're not coming to Macy's when you're coming to, to the temple. This is a house of prayer, and he drives them out. And again, you see it in his encounter with Herod and with Pilate. You see that same strength, but displayed with humility. With, uh, it's displayed humbly and lovingly toward the sinners and the needy. Remember, I guess back in the summertime, I talked about that encounter that Jesus had with that woman who was caught in adultery. And she was brought in by those Pharisees and made to look ridiculous in front of Jesus, in front of those, and those others. But what does Jesus do? He encounters her lovingly, gently. Woman, where are your accusers? Go and sin no more. He encounters the accusers with strength. You who have not sinned, you cast the first stone. And when they can't and they leave, woman, where are your accusers? There's a beautiful picture there. It's a picture of meekness. It's a picture of strength under control. There's a, another picture of meekness. It's a Mother Teresa. Amazing woman. She surrendered her life to serve Christ among the poorest of the poor and the weakest of the weak in Calcutta. She served them with loving devotion and gentleness and ascribed to them a sense of dignity and worth that no one else in the world would give to them. She lived among them in humility and she gave herself to them. She exemplified, she modeled the very life of Jesus, who though is in the very form of God, did not consider it necessary to maintain that, that Godhead in him. He abandoned that and came to the earth and lived among us. That's what Mother Teresa did. She went and lived among the lepers, among the poor, among the, the forgotten, among the neglected, the downtrodden. She lived among them in humility. She was gentle among them. But she also demonstrated a strength and a resolve. She had to deal with those government officials. She had to make sure that those people were cared for. They were getting the medications they needed, the medical care that they needed, the food that they needed. She had this strength and resolve to take on the government officials in Calcutta to care for the needs of the people that God had placed in her heart. She also demonstrated a strength and a resolve and a character when she stood up 
to a White House and to a president before a national audience at a dinner given in her honor, and she spoke out against the genocide of babies. I don't know if you've had a chance to see that or read that, but she looked square in the face of President Clinton and basically chewed him out. This little woman, just little baby woman, before a national audience in a banquet given in her honor, and she chews out the President of the United States. That takes some fire in your belly. That's the word pros. Strength under control. She stood up to corrupt government officials. She stood up to a fatalistic religious system, the Hindu religious system, that condemned people because of their station in life and that perpetuated that life through a series of reincarnations. That's a picture of meekness. <laughs> Strength under control. Strength that can be used, that can be guided, that can be directed by God. This beatitude says that the meek will inherit the earth. What, what is Jesus referring to? The meek will inherit the earth. Someone cynically said the meek do inherit the earth, but they tend to inherit very small plots, about six feet by three. I don't think that's what Jesus had in mind. A little burial plot, that's what you get when you die. Six feet by three feet or whatever, however deep they, they, they dig it now. I think there's both a present and a future application to what Jesus is saying here. The meek will inherit the earth. The present is that as we do justice, love mercy, and walk humbly before our God, our lives will impact people and public policy. This happened down through history. It has happened. The abolition, abolition of slavery and the right for women to vote are examples of how godly people have impacted our world. The peace and opportunity that we have enjoyed in this nation is due in large part to a godly heritage and a legal system that was based upon the precepts of God. That's what it means in part to inherit the earth. But the ultimate fulfillment of that promise will occur when Jesus ushers in the new kingdom, the new heavens, and the new earth. And they will be ours to enjoy, free from sin and corruption, free from, from sin and corruption and abuse and war and envy and pollution and anything else that you can think about. That's what we will inherit one day. Blessed are the meek. Jesus modeled it for us. The cross is the tangible reminder to us of his meekness. Strength submitted to the will of God. Remember what Jesus said? Or what Paul writes describing Jesus? And this comes from the message, so it might not seem like what you're familiar with, but I love how it's worded here. Think of yourselves the way Christ Jesus thought of himself. He had equal status with God, but didn't think so much of himself that he had to cling to the advantages of that status no matter what. Not at all. 
When the time came, he set aside the privileges of deity and took on the status of a slave. Became human. Became one of us. Having become human, he stayed human. It was an incredibly humbling process. He didn't claim special privileges. Instead, he lived a selfless, obedient life and then died a selfless, obedient death. The worst kind of death at that, a crucifixion. That's strength under control. That's meekness. That's the kind of meekness that we need to learn to embrace and embody and demonstrate in this society today. So, how do we do that? Well, verse 6. Our goal is God himself. I think there's a hymn. Our goal, my goal is God himself, not device, nor I forget how it goes now, but it's a beautiful old hymn. Our goal is God himself. Ralph Barton, one of the top cartoonists in the years gone by, left, his note, left this note pinned to his pillow before taking his own life. Okay? Committed suicide. Cartoonist. Committing suicide. I have had few difficulties, many friends, great successes. I have gone from wife to wife, from house to house, visited great countries of the world, but I am fed up with inventing devices to fill up 24 hours of the day. Now contrast that with what David says. As David expresses himself in Psalm 63, O God, you are my God. I earnestly search for you. My soul thirsts for you. My whole body longs for you. Do you get the sense of what David is saying? My whole body longs for you in this parched and weary land where there is no water. I have seen you in your sanctuary and gazed upon your power and glory. Your unfailing love is better than life itself. Too bad Mr. Barton hadn't discovered that. Tried to satisfy his life with things, with people, with activities. And those things never bring satisfaction. David goes on to say, Your unfailing love is better than life itself. How I praise you. I will praise you as long as I live. Lifting up my hands to you in prayer. You satisfy me more than the richest feast. I will praise you with the songs of joy. Where are you looking for your satisfaction today? I know our society is looking for satisfaction. (laughs) Driving up here, you kind of get the sense, coming from Lorraine up to here, you kind of get the sense, at least in the rural areas, people are looking after Trump. A lot of Trump signs. A variety of Trump signs. Some you can repeat and some you can't repeat. But a variety of Trump signs. And then there's the occasional Biden sign. You, you see where people are, are kind of fixing their hope. Some politicians. Politics. Republicans. Democrats. Whoever it may be. It doesn't matter. That's what they're fixing their hope on. And we're going to find out that neither Trump nor Biden are going to satisfy us. Very quickly into whatever their term, if it's Trump's second term, if it's Biden's first term, very quickly you're going to find that he's not satisfying your needs. He's not fulfilling the promises he made. 
and you're going to be disillusioned. And we're going to go into the same patterns that we've been in. The news cycles are going to be horrible. Everybody's going to be attacking each other. It's going to be horrible. Because we never find satisfaction in ourselves, in human beings. David summed it up. Our only satisfaction is found in the Lord. He's the only one that will nourish us and nurture us. Pastor John Piper wrote this. The hunger and thirst of your life that can't be satisfied by anything in this world is the constant beckoning of God to remember that we were made for another world. We were made for God. Our goal is God himself. <laughs> we were made for God. The weakness of our hunger for God isn't because he is unsavory, though, but rather because we can't keep ourselves stuffed with other things. Instead of trying to nourish and nurture ourselves with God, we try and find other things to satisfy our heart and our longings, and we fail. And so some of us end up like John Barton and take our li- or Ralph Barton and take our lives. Or we end up in alcohol and drugs. And I, I see it on it. I had a conversation with a, with a gentleman this week. Uh, I guess he's in his 50s, early 50s. Just consumed by alcohol and, and drugs. Self-medicating, trying to deal with his issues. Self-medication. And just coming to the end of himself. He can't do this anymore. He realizes. So I go in to visit with him. And the nurse comes in shortly after that, so I'm like, okay, well, you know, I'll let her do her thing, and I'll come, oh, please, come back, come back, i got to talk to you. So I came back, and a half hour afterwards, we're talking, and he's just unloading his heart, unburdening himself. Grew up in the church, but dissatisfied with the church, dissatisfied with religion, dissatisfied with the rules and regulations of religion. And I said, my friend, it's it's not about the rules and the regulations. It's not about religion. God didn't come to give us a religion. He came to give you something much greater, a relationship with Jesus. And Jesus will make the difference in your life. Well, he wanted to think that one through. Because like a lot of folks, they understand that that's right, that's true, but that means a life change, a lifestyle change that maybe I'm not prepared to make. So he needed to think it through. And I'll be able to follow up with him because he's going to go to one of our rehab hospitals and I can follow up with him again. But there was an open heart and a hunger and a thirst for something and a recognition in his eyes that this is the only place he's going to find it, but it's going to cost him and he's not prepared to make that cost yet. It's the same in our society today. Our society has lost its way. We've lost goal. God is our goal. We've, we've made the goal ourself, our successes, our happiness, our, our hope, whatever, our future, and, and it's, we've lost sight of it. Jesus said, Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness. It's fascinating that Jesus employs the two most intense longings of the human heart or the human body, to describe what could motivate a Christ follower. Hunger and thirst. The word hunger refers to the desperate craving a starving man has for food. Have you been there? Have you ever been so starving that you just, I'm going to die if I don't get something to eat? No, most of us haven't because we live in North America. We have ready access to food, most of us. 
Not too many people starve to death in America. Most of us are more like Garfield. Oh, I'm so hungry. I haven't eaten in minutes. Do you remember that scene in the movie Castaway where Tom Hanks is desperately trying to crack open a coconut? Do you remember that? Just that, that he's so thirsty. He has not had anything to drink, and you can see that desperation in his eyes. I couldn't find a picture of it. I wanted to find a picture of it. After several futile attempts, he manages to crack open the shell and drink the life-giving nectar. Do you, do you recall that? Do you recall the desperation in his eyes, though, when his first attempt at breaking open the coconut failed, and it broke all over the ground, and the juices just spread all over the ground? Do you remember that, that look in his eyes? Have you ever had that look yourself? That's what Jesus meant when he used the word Thirst. This is as close as I could come to that picture. He's finally got the leaf and the water, and he's using the coconut to fill it up. But, but look at his face. Look at his mouth. This desperation there. I need this liquid to give me life, because if I don't have it, I'm going to die. And, Jesus, and, and the psalmist writes, As the deer pants for streams of water, so my soul pants for you, O God. My soul thirsts for God, for the living God. Does that describe us? Do we have that same hunger and thirst for God? Is God truly our goal? My goal is God himself, not device or creed. Jesus says those who find themselves in that desperate hunger and thirst for righteousness will be satisfied. That word righteousness can be taken two ways, both of which fit the context. One, in the sense of justice. The Christ follower seeks for justice in an unjust world. The Christ follower is the bringer of justice. Where he sees poverty, he steps in to give assistance. Where he sees hunger, he's moved to compassion to supply food. Think about the agencies in the world today that are meeting the needs of people. Samaritan's Purse, World Vision, Compassion. What kind of agencies are those? Christian agencies, thank you. Uh, the Alliance, we have comma services. We're, we're, we're seeing a need and we're responding, and that historically has been the work of the church. I work for a Catholic health system. Over 100, 126 years ago, several nuns saw a great need in Ireland and felt nobody else is meeting this need. Something needs to be done, and so they, they birthed what has become today the Sisters of Mercy. Taking care of the needs of people that are not being cared for by society. That is our history as Christians. We just follow the example of Jesus. When Jesus saw a need, what did he do? He filled it. He cared for people. He loved on people. He met people where they were at. That is the, the, the track that we as Christians walk on. That's our life. That's what we do. We, we, we look for a way to meet the needs 
We care for the, for the poor, the needy. We look for ways to overcome injustices. But our motivation is not strictly moral. Our motivation is first and foremost because that's what we see Jesus doing. And we want to be just like Jesus. I seem to be coming back more and more in my own thinking and in my own life to Micah 6.8. He has shown you, O man, what is good. God has shown each of us what is good. And what does the Lord require of you, of each of us that are seated here this morning? What does God require of each of us this morning? To act justly. To love mercy. And to walk humbly with your God. Other translations put it, walk humbly before your God. The act justly and love mercy really should come second because it's that walking humbly with God that we learn God's heart. And we're moved by God to do those acts of mercy and justice and to love on people. The other understanding which I believe is primary, the primary understanding of this passage, which informs and drives the sense of justice, is a hunger for God. I just said it. You walk humbly before your God, and that drives everything else in you because you listen for the voice of God, and you obey the voice of God. Jesus is not describing the practice of righteousness so much as the pursuit of God himself. It's in the pursuit of a life-changing, unhindered relationship with God. It means that one's supreme desire in life is to know God and to be in fellowship with Him, to walk with God the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit in the light. The man who hungers and thirsts after righteousness is the man who longs for that above everything else. And in the end, there's nothing but a longing and desire to be like the Lord Jesus Himself. Martin Lloyd-Jones wrote that years ago it's so applicable and appropriate to us today the pursuit of God precedes and fires the practice of righteousness I think that's where I fall down in my pursuit of righteousness I lose sight of the true goal to know God I think that's a lot where, where a lot of Religious institutions have gone off track. We get so caught up in the, the act of doing things that we forget why we're doing them. Great universities in the world that began as religious institutions and lost their way have just become educational institutions devoid of God. In fact, they speak out against God now. Harvard, Yale, Princeton. Go on naming the institutions today. They lost sight of the goal. The goal is God himself. And he looks after everything else. The practice becomes the goal, and when the practice of righteousness becomes the goal, my faith grows cold and tired. Do you remember Keith Green, the songwriter, singer? Again, I'm old. Keith Green, back in the, what was it, 70s, 80s? He wrote this song, and expresses so much, so deeply, at times, my heart. My eyes are dry, my faith is cold, my heart is hard. My prayers are cold, 
and I know how I ought to be. Alive to you and dead to me. That's, that's the posture. That's the attitude. Alive to God and dead to me. That's the attitude that God can take and God can use to birth movements, to change lives, to change societies. It's not slogans like make America great again. I'm not against the slogan. But a political movement is not going to make America great again. A man is not going to make America great again. Only Jesus can change hearts and shape America into the nation that he wants it to be. A nation of righteousness and justice. My eyes are dry, my faith is old, my heart is hard, my prayers are cold, and I know how I ought to be alive to you and dead to me. In a moment, we're going to have an opportunity to come and, and receive the, the Lord's Supper. And it's an opportunity to reflect, think about that song, reflect on what Jesus has done for you. And if that song expresses your heart, it's an opportunity to say to the Lord, <laughs> This is who I am, but this is not who I want to be. I want to be alive to you. I want to be dead to me. Jesus, make me alive today. Move in my heart today as I come, as I receive the bread, and as I receive the cup. Breathe new life into me so that I hunger and thirst for righteousness, so that my heart is solely for you. Mike, you are my only goal, my only focus. Being alive to God means that he is my one pursuit. He's my lifelong goal. <laughs> I purpose to know him in Scripture. We sang a song earlier about seeing the, 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 the face of God. Where'd Ian go? He's gone. Remember that song? When, when, when you're out and about, you're driving through the cornfields around here. I'm just amazed at the number of cornfields in this place. Man, you've got cornfields. Do you see God's face in those cornfields? I get to work on the, on the birthing floor and I get to see babies. I see some real cute babies and I see some real ugly ones too. Ooh. <laughs> but each baby I see, I see the face of God. I go in the intensive care unit and I see people that are dying, actively dying or kind of on the verge and I look in their face and I see the face of God. Do you see the face of God in your day-to-day -day activities? Do you see the face of God in your children? I look at my dog, Sophie. I see the face of God because she can minister to me. She just loves on me. I can, I can do the stupidest thing in the world, and she'll just love on me anyways. Just this unconditional love. encourage you as you go through the day, through the week, look for the face of God in things and people and activities and be reminded that he has loved you with an everlasting love and he invites you into an everlasting relationship with him. It's not about rules and regulations. It's about this relationship with him that's life-giving, that's nurturing, and it's lasting. A friend of mine named Mike was incarcerated years ago when we lived in Waconia for illegal possession of oxycodone. 
he was exchanging it for some other medications and got caught. That's a federal felony. So he ended up in a federal prison. You ever been to a federal prison? <laughs> it's a scary place. And I would go to visit him. But it gave him lots of opportunity to kind of think, reflect on his life, reflect on his activities, his relationship with God. And in that whole process, Mike became a believer in the Lord Jesus Christ. And during his imprisonment, he spent his days in Bible study and prayer. And I would go up and visit with him. We'd share together. It was amazing. He went for walks and prayed and sang to God. Even in the dark places, we can know God because God will meet us in the darkest of places. The blessing that Jesus promises comes in the pursuit of God. The promise of God to all those who pursue him is that they will be filled and satisfied. They will be drawn deeper and deeper into the heart of God. At the end of his cry about thirsting after God in Psalm 42, the psalmist asks, where can I meet with God? The answer is right here and right now. The answer is wherever you find yourself, in the middle of a cornfield, you will meet with God. In the middle of a mall with hundreds and thousands of people around you, you will meet with God if you want to. We're going to celebrate the Lord's Supper this morning, and we have an opportunity to stop for a moment and express our hearts to God and receive from Him in this act of the bread and the cup not only the assurance of His forgiveness, but the assurance of His desire to have a deeply personal relationship with each one of us. Pastor Mike is looking after the kids back there, and I've gone way over time. You should have gathered that by now. I'm kind of long-winded. <laughs> 